Welcome to BrainBeat, a podcast series featuring discussions with experts on brain health and function, brought to you by the National Academy of Neuropsychology Foundation. I'm Pete Stabenoa, a clinical neuropsychologist and host for today's episode on neuroethics. I want to welcome our expert guest today, Dr. Nada Gligorov. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. So Dr. Gligorov is Director of Graduate Studies and Associate Professor at the Alden March Bioethics Institute at Albany Medical College. Prior to joining the Bioethics Institute, she was Associate Professor of Medical Education at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She received her PhD in philosophy from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And the primary focus of her scholarly work is the examination of the interaction between common sense and scientific theories. Her current scholarly efforts are primarily focused on whether brain death is biological death and the role of cognitive and emotional processes in pain perception. Dr. Glogorov has published in leading journals in bioethics and philosophy, including the Hastings Center Report, the American Journal of Bioethics Neuroscience, Neuroethics, and The Monist. Dr. Glogorov served as a member of the American Philosophical Association's Committee on Philosophy and Medicine from 2018 to 2020, and she's currently the chair of the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities Neuroethics Affinity Group. She's co-editor of The Human Microbiome, Ethical, Legal, and Social Concerns, published through Oxford University Press, and she's author of a book titled Neuroethics and the Scientific Revision of Common Sense that is part of a book series on studies in brain and mind through Springer Publishing. So welcome, Dr. Gligorov. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. So let's start with the basics. I think that neuroethics is going to be a topic that may not be just immediately familiar to all of our listeners. So can you just describe what is neuroethics? Neuroethics is a relatively new area of bioethics or just in general philosophy. And Dina Roskies, who is a neuroscientist and a philosopher, basically defines neuroethics as having these two distinct parts the ethics of neuroscience and the neuroscience of ethics. And I think, you know, I'll define both of them, but I'll also sort of highlight how I think those areas actually have an impact on our everyday life and how those issues are actually have started to sort of permeate the way we think about science and the way we think about neuroscience. So the ethics of neuroscience is more or less a subset of research ethics, meaning some of the questions that people who work within the ethics of neuroscience are interested in are related to the ethical conduct of neuroscience. So for example, we have a growing population of individuals who are developing dementias, in particular Alzheimer's, and there's a growing need to do research with individuals with Alzheimer's. And because Alzheimer's sort of prevents people from being able to make decisions in the same way as people who don't have that disorder, there are ethical issues related to enrolling individuals who might lack decisional capacity into research. So that would be, in a sense, a question within the domain of ethics of neuroscience, whether it would be okay to enroll somebody in research who might not be able to fully understand the requirements of participation. There's also questions related to the application of neuroscience. For example, some of the issues that have been coming more and more to the forefront are related to end-of-life decision-making, related to people with diminished states of consciousness, including things like vegetative states. 
And a kind of traditional issue that was initially just a bioethical issue, but is now sort of more and more within the domain of neuroscience is whether or not brain death is biological death. And some of the newer topics related to the application of neuroscience within the clinical domain are related to deep brain stimulation when they're used to treat, for example, Parkinson's and what are some of the consequences of using something that could be considered, quote unquote, an invasive technology in treating a disease and what are some of the behavioral consequences of that. And then there's also the neuroscience of ethics, which is a slightly less clinical or research related field in the sense that it's not really just about the ethical issues related to neuroscience, but it's more about how do you use neuroscience in a sense to examine some of the psychological faculties that underline our ability to make moral decisions. So for example, one of the old philosophical questions between whether or not morality is mostly determined by our emotions or by our reason People have tried to utilize, for example, functional MRIs to figure out how we make moral decisions and then to use those data to make conclusions about, you know, the nature of morality or what it takes to be a moral person. So that's basically sort of the two-part definition of neuroethics. Okay, so it's, it's an abstract term, but clearly there's a lot of applicability to everyday life. And Mm -hmm. it sounds like there's a protective aspect of this field. Mm -hmm. But then also, as we're on the cutting edge of newer and newer technologies, it's nice to know that there's some guardrails in place, you know, people thinking about some of these things that we haven't yet even thought of. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about your book because I read the book and it was it was really thought provoking. And I I wanted to just start with the title. It's it's Neuroethics and the Scientific Revision of Common Sense. Can you tell us more about what you mean by the scientific revision of common sense? Sure. So I just want to begin by saying in this book, I tap into some sort of already established traditions and philosophy when it comes to trying to define common sense. So the way in which I think of common sense is I think of common sense as the way in which we tackle everyday phenomena. So how it is that we either talk about everyday phenomena in real life and how we seek to explain and predict them. And so generally speaking, common sense can be applied to any domain. So there are things such as folk physics or common sense physics, there's folk psychology, there's folk morality. And so my focus is basically on how morality or common sense moral psychology is influenced by scientific theories. And so my argument is that common sense morality is an everyday way in which we talk about other people, meaning that the way in which we explain and predict our own behavior related to morality and the way in which we explain and predict other people's behavior. So what we do is we form certain concepts. For example, we form concepts of personal identity, free will, moral responsibility, and we use those concepts to explain and predict human behavior, both our own and other people's. And over time, I argue that these common sense concepts change. So I think that common sense concepts that our ancestors have might be different from the ones that we use nowadays. And in particular, I think one of the things that I think is happening 
is that some of these common sense concepts are being actually influenced by neuroscience. So science in general, but neuroscience in particular. And so my argument is that through the popularization of neuroscience and the fact that we hear about neuroscience research in the popular media and from other sources as well, that we have started to incorporate some of those scientific facts into our moral concepts. And that by using those scientifically influenced moral concepts, we are also explaining and predicting human behavior in everyday life based on this scientific influence. Okay. Well, so you touched on the neuroimaging aspect Mm -hmm. Um, kind of in your introduction, and that really relates to how our common sense view of morality and that may be shifting in response to some of these. And, you know, neuroimaging clearly is just something that is very popular in the media. It produces beautiful pictures and it plays to our sense of wanting to simplify things and say, well, you know, this part of the brain does this and that part of the brain does that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's lots of nuances, though, to neuroimaging. Um, that people may not have on their radar. You know, you've got Mm -hmm. the concept of mental privacy, many aspects. Could you talk about some of that? Sure. Yeah. So although there are a host of different brain imaging techniques, one of the techniques that has really captured popular imagination and some of the things that people have reported on a lot are related to functional MRIs. So functional magnetic resonance imaging. And the reason those imaging techniques are particularly captivating or interesting is because they seem to have the potential to not just capture the anatomy of the brain or reveal some sort of, let's say, tumor or something that traditional MRI imaging can already do, but they seem to be able to capture the way the brain functions. And because of that, there seems to be the possibility to even capture particular thoughts or particular psychological states that an individual might have. So there have been studies sort of demonstrating that one could, in principle, use an fMRI to identify whether an individual is thinking about a house or a car or something like that. In addition to that, there have been studies showing that through fMRI, you might be able to distinguish whether an individual is being truthful or not. Let's say if if they're looking at a photograph of a house or a neighborhood, that you might be able to tell whether they've been there before. And so some of the things that fMRIs are raising are things related to privacy in general, but mental privacy in particular, because It seems to be possible through the use of fMRI to, in a sense, know the contents of an individual's thoughts. So meaning that not just you, but other people using these imaging techniques might be able to know what you're thinking and when you're thinking it and when you're lying. And so there's a variety of different related concepts. There's neural privacy, which is related to data derived from the brain. But mental privacy, I think, has a particularly interesting significance because it seems to be allowing us to do, although in my book, I actually disagree with this, but nonetheless, it seems to have the promise to allow us to, in a sense, access psychological states from the first person perspective, meaning that other people might be able to adopt your perspective and know what you're thinking in the same way as you might be able to do. And so 
that's in a sense the issue related to mental privacy. What are we to do with A, this ability to access mental states so directly? And B, do we need special or additional protections related to this ability to be able to tap into some of these psychological states? So if, if someone is approached, let's say, to join a research study or let's say they need a, an fMRI clinically, what are mm-hmm. the safeguards to mental privacy currently? For the most part, these protocols related to research using fMRIs are pretty strict. So in effect, you need a lot of collaboration from the actual participants. So some of these lie detection studies or studies where people were asked to contribute to this research about where they show that an fMRI could tell what you're thinking, you know, these people collaborated and they knew the purpose of the study. They knew what information would be extracted from this. And so they consented specifically to that. So a lot of the safeguards that exist now for research in neuroscience and fMRI research are basically similar to other kinds of human subjects research, meaning that you have to agree exactly to what will be done in the research. You will be agree in a sense exactly to what is the information that might be shared. And then there is also confidentiality protections that already apply in research, both to medical information that might be in some sense extracted from the research and certainly any of the data that would be gotten from that research would have to be protected through guidelines that already exist for how to protect confidential information and could only be shared among individuals who are doing uh, similar research. And often, if that information is shared, it's usually sort of de-identified, so they wouldn't know that it was your data. Nonetheless, there are additional issues that could arise from doing research, let's say, in neuroscience. And that's actually one of the issues that sometimes come up in relation to the ethics of neuroscience, which is the issue of incidental findings. So for example, if let's say you decide to participate in a study related to, I don't know, uh, something like lag detection, people are taking an image of your brain and you might discover things. For example, let's say you might discover that you have a disease or neurological disease that you did not know you had before. Sometimes this could be, for example, an indication of a neurological disease that's genetic. So it could be something that's not related to the study, but they've now done an fMRI of your brain and they know something about you that wasn't necessarily planned uh, as part of the study. And so there are questions about how to relate that information, should participants be made aware of the incidental findings and who would be the person to tell them and how that might actually ultimately be incorporated into their medical record. Some additional issues that might arise that are not so related to either medicine or things that are immediately actionable for the individual, but it could be something like discovering asymptomatic mental illness. And that actually doesn't have to be an incidental finding. Obviously, there's lots of research to try and predict when people will develop uh, psychiatric illness. But since we know that there are psychiatric illness and there's all kinds of other illnesses that will often come with a certain degree of stigma, there are ethical issues related with knowing or discovering that somebody might develop a disease and how to treat that and what to do with that information. And there's issues that we perhaps have not entirely sorted out about how to minimize potential stigma with, for example, knowing that somebody might develop a psychiatric condition. Okay. Well, so talking about brain imaging and we're 
obviously constantly improving our methods and ability to capture brain activity and, and to look at corresponding thoughts and behaviors. So this sort of alludes to this idea that we can reduce our thoughts and feelings and behaviors down to biological processes that could be measured, detected, and that. So within that, what about the concept of free will? Can you sort of describe what that concept of free will is, and then we'll perhaps discuss that a little further? Yeah, sure. So the concept of free will can be defined in a variety of different ways. It's kind of a perennial problem in philosophy in particular, and it's you know not new really to worry about the relationship or the existence of free will in relation to the developments in science. In particular, you know, there's lots of moral philosophers, including Kant. So people who worked in the 17th and 18th century who worried about this idea that the more we know about human biology, the less we might be able to attribute free will to individuals. And I think within neuroscience, this fear has seemed to have reached an apex. Like, so people are really worried about, you know, now not only are you sort of explaining the workings of other organs or just the biology of the individual, but in neuroscience, what you're in a sense trying to do is basically provide a kind of strictly scientific explanation of human psychology, sort of reducing all of our psychological states, our feelings, our thoughts to the workings of the brain. And so especially when we're thinking about neuroethics and the development of these imaging techniques where more and more you're able to, in a sense, provide a localization. So identify even sort of discrete thoughts and be able to localize them in the brain. It seems like that approach is sort of squeezing out this idea that we can make choices that are independent of our biology. So in a sense, the reason there is friction between neuroscience and free will is because we tend to think that free will requires some sort of freedom from the natural law or freedom from our own biology, that no matter what the circumstances are, we are still able to make decisions that are not entirely determined by our biology. And Neuroscience seems to be making our psychology more similar to the workings of our other organs, in a sense. So meaning that we now seem to be discovering more and more that a lot of unconscious brain processes are basically there to determine some of our behavioral responses and some of our seemingly psychological states. And so that seems to be the threat to free will. So when we just generally think of free will, we think of it as this ability to choose amongst options so that in no matter what situation you're in, you can always make a choice about what to do and perhaps even do the right thing, which is usually there's free will is related to morality. But it seems to be the case, or it's, so people are interpreting neuroscience to be showing us that a lot of the, these things that we think are the result of our own deliberation, thinking about options, and then making a decision are actually the result of unconscious brain processes. That's fascinating. So conscious free will seems central to the assignment of responsibility for any of our actions. Mm -hmm. it, it underlies our personal responsibility, our moral responsibility. So as a clinician, I work with neurologic diseases that can affect consciousness, decision-making. I'd love to get your thoughts on the neuroethical issues first related to impairments or alterations of consciousness. 
Right. So there are a couple of questions there. One is, I think, a little bit philosophical, which is to what extent do we really need consciousness in order to have free will? So there is a traditional conception that free will is related to consciousness, but then there is also a lot of alternative views that basically prioritize a lot of our automatic processes or the automatic way in which we respond to external stimuli as being sort of, in a sense, a type of consciousness, or there are ways in which we actually act that's basically automatized. And it's not because our brain is making us do it. It's because over time we've over-practiced certain behaviors and we just keep doing them, even though in principle, if we wanted to, we could become aware of them and maybe even change them. So it's not necessarily the case that consciousness and free will have to come together, but it is something that most people would associate free will with consciousness. Related to individuals with uh, diminished states of consciousness, there's lots of controversy not so much related to their free will, but to their status as persons. So to what extent can we actually say that somebody who might lack certain kinds of consciousness would be considered a person or an individual for whom we would have certain kinds of responsibilities? So related to issues related to end of life. So for example, an individual who is in a minimally conscious states or an individual who's in a vegetative state, we have the opportunity or sort of, in a sense, the terrible choice of trying to make decisions for them at the end of life and trying to decide to what extent they ought to have medical care to maintain their life in the state that they're in. And often we tie consciousness with personhood or we think that a person has to be conscious. And sometimes people say that in order to in a sense, have a claim to certain medical resources, you might uh, need to have personhood or that only persons ought to have access to, to medical resources. And so that's a very controversial issue. And we don't really necessarily have any real answers to that particular question. But it does speak to this idea that consciousness is basically tied into a lot of the ways in which we think about ourselves, meaning like free will, personhood, clearly, obviously moral responsibility. People often will associate sort of the conscious ability to deliberate about morality as something that's, in a sense, a precondition for moral responsibility. So then this kind of relates, if we, if we consider still these neurodegenerative or neurologic injuries, brain injuries, dementia, even severe neurodevelopmental and intellectual disorders, that result in a loss of cognitive capacity to some extent. What are the implications of those kinds of conditions when cognitive capacity for decision-making has been impaired and then mixing in this concept of, of free will? Yeah, so I think that some of the neurocognitive conditions that we've talked about, especially sort of things related to Alzheimer's disease or anything that in particular robs an individual of their ability to make decisions, we think of them related to consciousness. So obviously, as an individual might have diminished states of consciousness, we tend to sort of also think of them as having diminished free will or even sometimes diminished cognition. But I think that it's actually not necessary to think of consciousness as being the primary 
sort of ingredient there. It's not just that people are losing or have diminished states of consciousness. It's much more that they're losing some of their other capabilities. So when you're losing your cognition, you're losing aspects of your memory, you're losing your ability to appreciate information and apply it to yourself you're less able to really sort of hold a variety of different alternatives in your mind and use those to make decisions. So I think that we tend to think of consciousness as being a stand-in for human psychology so that when we say that an individual is conscious or is in a diminished state of consciousness, what we in a sense mean is that they have different psychology or impairments in their psychological states, but consciousness is just one ingredient of that. And I think a lot of the other elements of our psychology, such as our cognition, our ability to process information, to retain it, and to use it to make decisions are much more determinative of an individual's ability to both make decisions, but also to be responsible for their decision-making. And, you know, also just to kind of think through some of the different ways in which an individual psychology could be impaired. So for example, there are a variety of different dementias. So there are behavioral kinds of dementias, which don't necessarily begin by diminishing the person's ability to retain memories, but they might actually cause really significant behavioral changes, many of them within the domain of morality. So for example, individuals with behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia will engage sometimes in behavior that we might consider immoral. So for example, stealing or gambling, or even sometimes have hypersexual ways in which the disease is expressed. And those kinds of conditions actually raise some really significant questions related to free will, because we know in a sense that their brain function is changing. And then the question is, to what extent can we then really attribute moral responsibility to them? Or should we just consider them as behaving in ways that they're not really responsible for, even though the things that they're doing are things that we would usually condemn as immoral? Yeah, that's a topic we can, I think, just kind of keep going and going and going on. But I wanted to move on From that end of the spectrum, where we're talking more about neurologic compromise and the implications of that, to the idea of changing the brain in a positive way, and specifically about cognitive enhancement and Mm -hmm. the ethics and the implications about cognitive enhancement. So first of all, just for the audience, what is cognitive enhancement? So cognitive enhancement basically would be the use of medication or other kinds of medical interventions to enhance or to make normal cognition better. So some of the things like modafinil, methylphenidate, dextroamphetamine, so medicines that have been used to treat conditions, so something, drugs that have been used to treat ADHD or drugs like modafinil to treat people with narcolepsy and have sleep disorders, The use or application of those medications to individuals who don't have those conditions and using them in a sense to keep people awake longer or perhaps to enhance their cognition in ways that would, let's say, make them better at taking exams or just sort of performing in cognitive domain. So the idea would be basically the use of what are currently approved medicines for enhancement in memory 
problem solving, all kinds of sorts of decision making. In addition to that, medicines that could keep us awake longer without actually uh, losing any cognitive ability. So modafinil, for example, keeps uh, individuals awake and sort of prevents the cognitive decline that comes with being tired. And so the idea is that now we are, in a sense, using what are medicines for what we could consider as medical conditions in normal individuals to enhance or promote certain kinds of psychological capabilities rather than to just ameliorate the effects of a disease. Okay. So clearly policymakers are not at a place where they've approved these kinds of treatments for an enhancement, but what are the ethical downsides? What are the, what are the conundrums that would come up? Because it sounds good on the surface. You know, I use these, these substances or these treatments and they enhance my performance. So what's the downside? Right. So there are a variety of downsides and also there are conceivable positive outcomes of using these medicines. There's a a variety of different ways in which one can conceptualize the downsides. One of them is the increased medicalization of the human condition. So basically, if what you're doing in cognitive enhancement is using medicine to promote a desired trait rather than treat a disease. So one of the ways in which people have proposed a way of trying to distinguish between the moral and immoral uses of medical technology is basically through the treatment and enhancement distinction. So the argument goes that the ethical use of medicine should correspond with the treatment of disease or the prevention of disability, but that it shouldn't be used to enhance normal human abilities or to promote certain desirable traits that we would like to achieve, but we don't have. And so there's a lot of problems with that particular distinction. A philosopher named Norman Daniels actually has challenged that distinction in a variety of different ways. But one of them is basically that, in a sense, we don't really make that distinction even when we use regular medicine. We often do actually use medicine to improve quality of life, not just to treat disease. And also there's lots of problems related to trying to identify disease purely on biological criteria, right? So there is, that can, you know, happen obviously in psychiatry, but there's also even at the more basic level, the definition of disease is sometimes related to very normative ideas about what human beings ought to be like, what their ideal functioning ought to be like, and even just the concept of normal can be sort of related uh, a lot to our cultural and other kinds of ideas about what constitutes normal functioning. So it can be actually very hard to make the distinction between cognitive enhancers and just the medical use of medicine. So I work in pediatrics, and certainly there's no shortage of parents who are seeking treatment for what they perceive to be a problem. And then let's say that clinically we assess that the child really is normal and the the parent may be expecting too much. So in this idea of cognitive enhancement, you know, do you have thoughts about parents making decisions on behalf of their kids? You know, whether it's about, I understand the line between enhancement and treatment is so difficult to objectify, but do you have thoughts about the implications of parents making those kinds of decisions for their kids? Right. So I think that's an excellent question and sometimes a, a very difficult issue to adjudicate because I think that 
parents are in a sense inherently surrogates. So they're making decisions in a way that can either promote or not the overall well-being of their kids and even sort of affect their future. You know, we do have currently guidelines for the types of requests that parents can make on behalf of their children, but we do often err on the autonomy of parents. So we do allow parents to make a lot of decisions for their kids related to medicine, related to education, related to where and how the kids will grow up. And I think that medical decision-making on behalf of children is sort of similar, meaning that we do, in a sense, let parents make a lot of decisions for kids. And so I think that there is not necessarily a kind of an easy way to say that we shouldn't let parents make decisions in certain domains or that we should limit their ability based on because they have perhaps sometimes different ideas about what constitutes normal or they might have desires for their kids that are perhaps unrealistic. So they might want to have a child that's incredibly academically gifted. Their their kid might not be. And so they might want to use some of these medicines for cognitive enhancement. So there's clearly a lot of documented pressure to utilize some of these medicines like dextroamphetamine and methylphenidate to basically promote academic performance or something like that. But obviously there are other aspects of human functioning or the child's development that the parents might perceive differently, let's say, than their physician or their healthcare provider. And so I think that although I wouldn't offer some kind of hard line where the physician or the psychologist or the psychiatrist should just simply not take into account what the parents want, I do think that there is some role for clinical decision-making and clinical collaboration there and that the psychiatrist or the psychologist might encourage the parents to think of their child's behavior in a broader context, meaning what might not seem normal to them might seem normal to a psychiatrist who has seen or a psychologist who has seen many different kids who behave in, in a variety of different ways, and they might have a better perspective on what might be considered regular, in a sense, in development. But I do want to sort of emphasize that one of the things that we often focus on with the development of new technology and new medicine is sort of on the disruptiveness of those particular tools. So we sometimes say that things like fMRIs are a morally disruptive technology. People will talk about cognitive enhancement in similar ways, meaning that these medicines that now have the potential to change our psychology or even to affect how we think of our mental privacy are changing our morality or changing the kinds of moral questions that we need to ask. But I think that the truth is that that in fact, some of these issues that become really conspicuous with the use of these medicines because they might be so effective or they make it so that we can actually interfere with either development, psychological development, or even to really be able to know more about human psychology, what they're doing is just making conspicuous some of the problems that we've already had, which is that we, in a sense, have to make decisions about what our communal values are and then try to utilize those medicines in a way that best promotes those values. So there are a variety of drawbacks, I think, with the use of, let's say, cognitive enhancers and 
One, because I think that in a sense, everybody wants their child to be the best possible performer. And so there's kind of a diminishment of just regular differences between children. But the way in which we conceive of what is normal, the ways in which we conceive of what excellent might be or what a desirable trait might be, is really very heavily influenced by the kinds of values that our societies have. And so I think more recently, people have started to notice that, for example, the use of cognitive enhancers and other types of, in addition to that, also moral enhancers. So things that might promote certain kinds of moral behavior have been used in a sense to enforce perhaps sometimes culturally oppressive practices. And so that individuals that we think might need cognitive enhancement or individuals who we think might need moral enhancement might be individuals who are either in the minority or people who might be from oppressed minorities uh, or racialized individuals because we tend to pathologize those behaviors a little bit more than we would individuals who are not in the racialized minorities. Timothy Brown, for example, has written about how a moral bioenhancement might actually be a way of promoting, in a sense, racial oppression. So there are certainly those kinds of justice-related issues and moral-related uh, issues with the use of cognitive neuroenhancers. So I wanted to ask specifically about memory modification. In mm-hmm. your book, you wrote about that, and it really was striking to me. It was not something that I had thought of in the way that you wrote about it. And I wonder if you might elaborate a little bit on this idea of memory modification and some of the impacts that that might have in terms of just ethical thoughts and personal identity and and those kinds of things. So there are, you know, similar to cognitive neuroenhancers, there are medicines, for example, beta blockers that have been studied in relation to PTSD And they have been shown to, in some small studies, basically be able to prevent the development of PTSD, in part because they're able to blunt the emotional effect of memory. And there have also been some animal studies where it has been demonstrated that uh, with the use of particular techniques, it might be possible to basically erase a particular memory, but only in animal models, not for individuals. Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) And so some of the ethical issues that people have raised in relation to that. So for example, especially in relation to beta blockers to prevent PTSD, one of the worries is that, let's say, if we sort of preemptively give beta blockers to soldiers who are fighting in battles, that we might blunt their normal emotional responses to violence and in fact promote violent behavior or basically in a sense create individuals who could engage in violence without really developing the regular emotional reaction to it, which most of us think prevent us from engaging in further violence. So dampening the emotional reaction might actually beget individuals who might be more comfortable with violence, which is obviously not something we would want. But similarly, there are more hypothetical dangers because we still don't have the technology to do that. So for example, if you could, in principle, erase, let's say, traumatic experiences, or one of the things that I had mentioned in my book is this example of a woman who wanted to use, let's say, some sort of memory modifying technology to erase memories of being 
bullied in high school or being ostracized in high school and just sort of trying to utilize some of these medical resources to seek equanimity and to sort of have a kind of a way of getting rid of negative feelings and negative emotions that are related to having traumatic memories. And so there's lots of questions related to that. One is, for example, if you are an individual who has witnessed historically significant traumatic events, would erasing those memories basically, in a sense, rob society of the ability to learn from those terrible events? So obviously, we have historical learning and cultural learning that, in principle, should prevent us from repeating the same mistakes that we've made in the past or making the same moral mistakes in the future. So obviously, you know, there's a cost there in terms of whether we would, in a sense, be less able to be moral in the future by not remembering terrible things that happened in the past. And then there's other questions like if you, for example, you don't remember terrible things that happened to you in the past, you might not be able to figure out how to avoid them in the future. So there's lots of both practical and sort of reasons why somebody might need certain kinds of memories, but also there might be also sort of the moral sequelae of not having the memory of certain terrible events. How would we learn from them and how would we actually achieve moral progress without without remembering things in the past that we didn't like or that were painful. Yeah, the, the richness of those thoughts, it, it really struck me as I read those things. And, and it's just, these are things that were certainly not on my radar. Mm-hmm. I know our time is winding up, but I want, you, you write a lot about pain as a mental state. And I thought that would be important to elaborate on. And I was wondering if you could give some thought to kind of what you mean by that pain as a mental state. Right. So pain is often thought to be a primarily subjective state even the biological state of, you know, even if somebody sort of pokes you in the arm. So when you're getting vaccinated, the jab leads to a painful experience. And traditionally in philosophy, but also even in research, pain has been considered to be a subjective state, meaning that a person is the primary arbiter of whether or not they are experiencing pain or whether or not they're in pain. So when I say that I'm in pain, in a sense, that basically means that I'm in pain, but also more than that, that in a sense, it would be impossible to say, you know, that I'm wrong about being in pain because just my experience of it makes it the case that I am in that state. In addition to that, it would seem almost impossible to say you are feeling pain, but you don't know it. So it seems like there is a complete overlap with our subjective experience of pain and the presence of pain. And so by saying that pain is is a mental state, that basically means that we've often primarily defined pain as being this psychological state, not necessarily a state that could be seen by other people or investigated by other people. It primarily lives in our subjective experience of it. And I think that's actually somewhere where, for example, our use of brain imaging can actually challenge a little bit that particular conception of pain. Because there's a lot of research nowadays on something called the pain matrix or the pain system in the brain, where there seems to be a pretty steady correlation between the activation of certain areas in the brain and the experience, the subjective experience of pain. And that might even include a very specific aspects of pain. So how intense the pain is, whether it's sharp or dull, 
whether or not it's particularly unpleasant and how it might relate to other psychological states such as suffering. So whether what is the relationship between pain and suffering? Are they the same thing or are they different? So a lot of these things people have really worked on investigating from the neuroscientific perspective and utilizing imaging sometimes to do that. So in a sense, the way I talk about it in the book and in some of my other writing, I sort of both maintain the subjectivity of pain, meaning that I actually think that the neuroscientific tools that we're utilizing to investigate pain are basically showing us that the subjective aspect of pain or the way that pain feels to us, in a sense, is supported or is confirmed by some of these brain imaging techniques, because in a sense, there seems to be a correlation between the subjective experiences and the activation within the brain. And so I think that one can both say that uh, pain is a kind of a biological process, meaning that there are biological underpinnings of the sensation of pain, and also say that pain is psychological. So both maintain this idea that it's a subjective experience, but also be able to say that there are consistent biological underpinnings to this subjective experience. Are there any justice aspects to this differentiation in pain as you see it? Yeah, so so one of the things that I had particularly written about is the cognitive and the emotional influences on a pain experience. So there's there's quite a lot of evidence basically suggesting that attention, expectation, learning over time can impact how we experience pain and the likelihood that we will experience pain relief. So one of the obvious ways of talking about the cognitive influence of pain is through the placebo effect. So we know that if people have positive treatment expectations, they're much more likely to experience relief from their pain if they believe that the medicine will help them. Similarly, there's evidence to show that positive interactions with physicians or clinicians where the patient expects uh, that the clinician will listen to them and take care of them and sort of the positive aspects of the clinical encounter can lead to diminished states of pain and can lead to the placebo effect. It's also similarly true that if you have negative treatment expectations, you are less likely to experience pain relief and there's things related to the nocebo effect. So if somebody tells you that you're likely to experience a high intensity pain, that might actually cause the individual to experience high intensity pain. So both attention and expectation and learning over time through experience with clinicians might lead people to either feel a greater pain relief or feel greater pain. And so in a recent paper that I've worked on with a colleague of mine, Phoebe Friesen, we discussed how basically this cognitive and emotional influence on the sensation of pain can be used to sort of explain racial disparities in treatment, meaning that we know that if people expect negative things from their clinical encounters, they might actually be less likely to experience pain relief and more likely to have more pain. And so individuals who traditionally have 
not been treated in the same way in the medical context. So racialized individuals have less access to care. And when they do have care, might be exposed to explicit or implicit bias. Those individuals as well might be less likely to benefit from the placebo effect, but also might be more likely or more prone to the nocebo effect because they have negative treatment, justifiably uh, negative treatment expectations. And so some of these mechanisms could in part be used to explain how we can see disparities at the bedside related to pain treatment and pain experience. Okay. Well, unfortunately, our time is short. We're going to have to wrap up. But this has been a fascinating discussion of things that some of which, you know, are on people's radar. But I think that there's just so much more to consider. And and yet it's all still so applied to our daily lives and our daily decision making. And I just want to thank you again for joining us here today for this fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. And I'm really grateful for the opportunity to discuss my work. So for more information about the NAN Foundation and neuropsychology, please visit thenanfoundation.org.